Hey, this is Kyle. And this is David. And this is the Techno Podcast. the Techno Podcast, where we interview uh, individuals in the Denton community in realms of tech and startup and whatever else is going on and help tell their stories. And today we're sitting here with Danielle Gaither. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> nice. Thanks for coming on. Um, so this is where I always pitch it over to David to like to kick the show off. David, would you like to kick the show off? Of course. So <laughs> usual starting question that I have because it's the first on my list. What brought you to Denton? And... I left that trailing. What brought you to Denton? <laughs> okay. Originally, I was actually born here. Uh, both my parents went to what is now UNT back when it was North Texas State in the mid-70s. My dad is class of 77 in industrial arts, which is a program they don't have anymore, but it was training to be a shop teacher. And then we moved away when I was little, and I came back here to go to school myself in 2007. Cool. And you've just been here ever since. Yes. Nice. I, I've changed programs a couple of times. So, <laughs> so I, I was actually working full time when I started. So. so did you just get drawn back to Denton because it's where you're from? Or was there something else that, that said, I want to go to Denton? Well, part of it is I'm a veteran. And so uh, I have a generous education excuse me I'm part of it is I'm a veteran and veterans have generous educational benefits especially veterans from Texas going to state schools so for an ideal economic situation that already kind of limited my pool <laughs> and uh, since I had ties to this area already and the cost of living is relatively cheap when you compare it to like Austin or even downtown Dallas or something like that it seemed like a reasonable choice. So. <laughs> cool. So, so I know there's, there's a lot of things I think I know about you, and there's a lot of things I think I don't know about you. Okay. <laughs> so what I do know is that you are a grad student at UNT studying correct. some realm of computer science. That is correct. That is correct. And then you also do freelance uh, copywriting and yes. kind of like starting web development and things like that on the side as yes. well. So, so what, is, what, is your, what is your current gig? Like, okay. So, so I'm a PhD student. Actually, I'm a, I'm a PhD candidate, if you want to, if you're inclined to make that distinction, <laughs> which means I am what they call ABD, which stands for all but dissertation. I've completed all my coursework requirements and qualifying exams and all that good stuff. And all I have to do is actually write and defend a dissertation. Unfortunately, that is the real hard part <laughs> of graduate school and a non-trivial percentage of students who get to that phase don't finish it. Mm -hmm. you know, ho hopefully I will, but, <laughs> but, that's, but that, that's where I am in my graduate studies. And I ha how I pay my bills primarily at the moment is I have what they call a teaching fellowship which uh, means I actually teach a course for the department. And this semester, I am teaching an undergraduate section of our algorithms course, Sweet. which has been enlightening for all involved, <laughs> if not necessarily in the ways we might have intended. And then 
as my side hustle, I have I do some freelance copywriting. I contract with a media company who in turn contracts with small businesses all over the country to handle their social media for them. So basically, I get paid to write tweets and Facebook posts. <laughs> I'm living the millennial dream. Living the dream. <laughs> Despite not being a millennial, but yeah. technicalities. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. And I also know just enough WordPress to be dangerous. <laughs> and uh, actually, a probable distant relative got in touch with me because it turns out there's a genealogical association of people who share my last name, and they are wanting a website revamp, and it's WordPress-based. And uh, so the head of that society contacted me. He's like, hey, your last name's Gaither, and you do some web development. Can you help <laughs> us out? And I was like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's and funny. So, so that's I, I have my my fingers in a lot of pies, so to speak. I imagine that uh, the the Taylor group is very large and very disorganized. <laughs> right, right, because it's a much more common name. Yeah, Gaither is a more unusual name. There just aren't as many of us numbers wise. Yeah. And even fewer like in the organization. Is so. there is there a Bruno meetup going on somewhere? No, but I am friends with all four other David Brunos on <laughs> Facebook. Nice. So that's that's an accomplishment. Yeah. So, so you are a, a CS student. So how, so how did you get involved in tech? I know your dad was, like, went to school for engineering. And it, is that what kind of started you on the tech route? Like what made you Sort of. Well, actually, my dad went to school to be a shop teacher. Right. And by teaching uh, drafting courses, he got a, his hands on an early version of uh, AutoCAD <clears throat> back in the early 80s, which uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's uh, basically like like drafting software and, you know, like creating models of physical objects um, before you might like design them, you know, like for welding or wood shop or whatever. And uh, he kind of used that experience to sort of back into network administration, which is actually what he spent most of his career doing. He's semi-retired now. But most of his career was as a net, as a network administrator, and I would go to work with him way before take your daughters to work day was a thing, <laughs> and uh, be around all the computers and all his coworkers and stuff like that. But I actually originally went to college to be a musician because I thought I was going to be some hotshot playing in a glamorous orchestra, <laughs> and that turned out uh, to be false. <laughs> <laughs> And so I joined the Marine Corps, as one does. <laughs> of course. To become, uh, become a musician and basically collect a steady paycheck and do something with my music while I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm -hmm. I'm still working on that, but <laughs> <laughs> I am at least qualified now for much better jobs than I was with my BA in music history from a different school. Yeah. yeah. So did you start like like the tech path like while you were in the Marines or whenever you got out you were like, hmm, what's the what's the best thing I can do? Well, I've always been pretty tech savvy. Like even when I was working for my music history degree, I worked part time in the computer lab. It was a very small college, so we just had one. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I had always been in interested in it as a, a hobby level, but I didn't want to make it my career back then because I was an artist <laughs> and tech work was soulless and yeah. boring and repetitive and all that kind of stuff. By the way, it, if any of you are considering pursuing careers in the arts, there's a lot of soulless, boring, repetitive aspects to that kind of work, too. <laughs> Just so you know. Public service announcement. <laughs> 
but I had always been interested in technology and yeah. how it can improve our lives and all that kind of stuff. And um, at my last duty station on active duty, I was stationed in Hawaii, and it's common in the military for musicians to have a secondary duty. And mine, because I was one of the more tech savvy people there, I handled computer and phone issues for the band. And so I was like, well, why don't I just make this my career? It's something I don't have to completely learn from the ground up. And, you know, solving problems is something I actually enjoy. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I worked my way into uh, more technical degrees. So that's cool. Yeah, so I, I imagine that, right, so right now you're teaching an algorithms course. Right. That's something we talk about in, like, with a couple of us in Stoke all the time. Um, uh, Terry, one of the guys here specifically, we continually talk about uh, starting an algorithm, like, like study group. Because mm-hmm. there's, like, programming and it's, like, learning syntax and learning languages. Right. But, like, algorithms is more of, like, how do you, like, attempt to solve a problem before we right. even know what language you're going to be using. Exactly. When I, I used to teach labs for one of our beginning programming courses, and I would tell my students that were struggling, you know, put the keyboard away for a second and just take out a pencil and paper and write down what you're trying to do. And mm-hmm. once you figure that out, it's much easier to implement it in code. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're also part of a number of other like either student organizations or other organizations. Yes. Um, and I know. And so, look, for, like, first off. Uh, how did you even hear about and start coming to the techno events? Because I don't remember if it was a little doc or an APIs and IPAs that you showed up at first. Maybe it was, I don't know which one you came to first. I think it was a little doc. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I had been uh, alerted to the existence of tech mill by a colleague of mine who I'm pretty sure has never actually been to any of your events, <laughs> but he's very interested in like the startup and entrepreneurship space. Mm-hmm. And so that that's, you know, he had learned about tech mill and right. he mentioned it. And so I got on the meetup page and in typical fashion, didn't do anything about it for months. <laughs> and then, um, it was either January or February of 2015 uh, Jason Cartwright, Cartwright? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Cartwright sent out an email to everyone saying, you know, they, they were like maybe relaunching Little Doc or something like that <laughs> or doing something different or there were all these people who were on the list and had never actually showed up and like, you should totally show up. And so I was like, you know what? I think I will. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't and you glad you did? <laughs> I am. And uh, I, I, you know, I had a good time. I was like, oh, this, this was nice. Maybe I'll try one of these APIs and IPAs things. Yeah. And uh, that's... Have uh, you know started like really making connections? Uh, you and Dan Minshew, who was on a few episodes ago, and I had a conversation about Indianness, which I won't get into right now. <laughs> but it's one of those theoretical things that you don't learn about if you just learn how to program from O'Reilly books. Which I mean, don't get me wrong, that's a perfectly good way to learn to code, but it's just it doesn't tell you everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So so what are the other organizations that you're involved in, either on campus or off campus? Okay. Well. Uh, I'm involved with the local chapter of Women Who Code. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we're technically we're an offshoot of the Dallas chapter of Women Who Code, <laughs> but uh, that's been pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, we we actually have a pretty diverse uh, group of people that come. It's not all students. There's yeah. a lot of uh, self-taught developers and even some traditional developers, people who've been in the industry for a long time, who who come to the meetings. And then I'm also active with a student chapter of, we, we, called, we just called the organization Women in Computing, and it was started a few years ago. 
by uh, one of our uh, faculty members who had had a very successful chapter at her previous institution and wanted to bring that here. And so we've had book clubs and done a lot of outreach work to basically increase the visibility of women in the computing field and give them more opportunities for leadership. So Mm -hmm. like we ran a software testing competition once. And so we gave people chances to, you know, take leadership initiatives in ways they might not have previously had access to. Yeah, that's really cool. And that sounds like a really great way to, hey, I think I have some buggy software. Can you guys run a competition (laughs) around it? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's not meant to map to real software. There's actually a really interesting story about that that particular tool that's maybe a little bit outside the scope of what we're doing here. Yeah, totally. Give me comments. It was quite a tease there. The really interesting story and then no, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell it if you I want to hear it now. Okay. okay. <laughs> so this is actually developed by the, the same faculty member I alluded to um, earlier. Well, her name is uh, Dr. Renee Bryce, and she's an associate professor at UNT in the computer science department. And previously she was at Utah State University, I think. It was developed at her previous institution. And her area of expertise is software testing, which I I didn't even know that software testing research existed until she came to present to us as a faculty candidate. (laughs) And it it turns out there's quite a lot going on in that space. And so she developed this tool called Bug Catcher. And the idea is to kind of expose people, mostly like middle school and high school aged kids, who maybe aren't familiar with code and don't have access to computer science courses and stuff like that, and show them that they can work with code in a meaningful way that's not intimidating. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people who aren't familiar with coding think it's like all these super intimidating zeros and ones. And what this does is it doesn't require any previous coding exposure. Basically, you have these functions, and there's the uh, expected output and the actual output. And so basically, you're just writing te- you know, very simple tests mm-hmm. to test the code. Mm-hmm. And they uh, published a paper on this, maybe more than one. And the idea is they gave a survey to the people who took this test, and the pre-survey, a lot of kids said they weren't really interested in tech careers, but in the post-survey, a lot more were interested mm-hmm. in technical technical careers and could see themselves doing that kind of work. Yeah. And so. Yeah. So is so isn't your your dissertation is on well the one you're currently writing is about software testing, right? Sort of. Sort of. Um, I'm I only plan on writing the one dissertation. <laughs> 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 I, I'm I'm not that stellar. Um, <laughs> What, what I'm working with right now is kind of an area of requirements engineering, uh, more specifically requirements analysis. Mm-hmm. So basically, like given a requirements document, I'm working on a tool that builds a model of those requirements and then analyzes it to find you know potential unexpected behaviors in the system. Mm-hmm. Because there have been studies that sh- have shown that if you catch a bug in the requirements analysis phase, it's a lot cheaper than if you do so in development or testing. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like um, I need someone to log into a system, and then it turns out the system doesn't even have a login function. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stuff like that. What cool. I found when, when I have bad requirements at the beginning, it becomes like 
at the end of it, it's kind of a death march of, oh, we need to do this also. Oh, we need to do this also. <laughs> exactly. And that goes on for a long time, and it's right. it, that is soul-crushing right there. So, yeah, yeah there, there has been a more, like, I would say probably since the mid-'90s, there's been more of an effort to, uh, to like, gather and handle requirements in a more systematic way. And there, there's evidence that it has reduced the uh, overall failure rate of IT projects, because depending on whose estimate you believe um, at least 20% of IT projects at least don't entirely succeed. Basically, either they're canceled or they're over budget or behind schedule or something, or they don't meet all the requirements. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those failure rates would not be tolerated in most other fields of engineering. Like, I'm pretty sure if that percentage <laughs> of construction projects failed, that would be like cause for a crisis <laughs> in the field is like, okay, we need to totally revamp how we retrain people. But because, you know, computer science and compu the computing field in general is still relatively new, there's still a lot of things we figure out. And there are things that there are, there are things that we can learn from like physical design, but there are things that don't map directly. Like I mentioned, my dad got into networking through, um, through uh, design software for physical objects and um, computer-aided design is the uh, official term, I think. And so in the software engineering field around this time, this is in the early 80s, they also they came out with what were called case tools, computer-aided software engineering. And the idea was that, well, maybe we can see the same kind of revolutionary gains in productivity that they saw in the physical design space with CAD tools. And case tools, at least the case tools of that era, were mostly an abject failure. Mm -hmm. And so the model-driven engineering industry, especially with software, had to kind of go back to the drawing board and see, okay, you know, why did this fail and how can we do it better? Mm -hmm. And so the, I, I, I won't get into it, but there's there's been some progress and some companies that have employed specialized versions of it that have uh, seen some very helpful gains in productivity. Yeah. But. Dan and I were uh, talking the other day about um, documentation, like software mm -hmm. documentation. And, and so there's, mm -hmm. there's a test driven design where you write tests right. and you write tests and that's how you start developing code. Right. There's also behavior driven design. So you're looking at what the users are doing and writing, right. uh, you know, like stories after that or yeah. for that. Uh, and then he was telling me that there's a documentation-driven design. So you yeah, write I your documentation about this first. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if I could ever do that. <laughs> yeah, on one hand, uh, when I first saw about that, when I first saw that uh, an article explaining that, my, my first thought was, I don't know if that's going to work. And then my second reaction was, well, that's one way to make sure documentation gets written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Possibly written wrong, though, also, because <laughs> right. anything that you have to change, you have to go back and change both the documentation and code. <laughs> right, and, and that, that's an issue with model-driven software engineering as well, is that, um, and, and th that's actually been a big debate, and, you know, should it be just a one-way transformation you know, where you just update the model and then that should update, you know, if there's a code generator attached to it or something like that. Or do you want it to be a two-way transformation? Like, do you want a change in the code to make a change in the model? And that's a big philosophical debate mm -hmm. that uh, two people in particular have at apparently every model-driven engineering conference. And it's like <laughs> watching tennis, watching them go back and forth. <laughs> I've, I've seen it. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, so, so let's talk more about... Um, 
women who code. Okay. Because I know before we're talking about like what like something you're passionate about, and one of these things is diversity in yes. technology. And right. And so, so what? I mean, what what are your opinions on it? Like, how do you feel um, about diversity in technology? Well, a lot of people, I think, frame it as a moral issue. Like, it's the nice thing to do to have you know more women, queer people, people of color, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually the right thing to do from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, to borrow an example, not from the tech industry, um, the first airbags, when they started putting airbags in cars in the 1980s, they were injuring, and in some cases, even killing women, because the airbags had only been tested on dummies that were roughly, you know, adult male-sized. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, now we know, like, you know, you shouldn't have front-facing child seats in a car with airbags and all that kind of stuff. But we didn't know that right away because they were only tested on, you know, fake adult men. And so they didn't consider, you know, dimensions of a woman's body or a child's body and how that might be different. Mm -hmm. And uh, to borrow an example from the tech industry, a few years ago, uh, HP came out with a line of uh, laptops with supposedly these uh, fancy webcams. And they were supposed to track your movement. But in some lighting conditions, if you were black, they didn't work so well. And there's actually some videos on YouTube. There's a video of, of a black man who had talked about, uh, he had bought one of the laptops for for a Christmas gift for his wife. Mm -hmm. And he, it was, he was showing that the laptop wouldn't, wouldn't track him, the, the webcam wouldn't track him. And then he brought his white coworker into the frame and it totally tracked her every move. <laughs> <laughs> And so I think, you know, that, that obviously caused HP some bad PR and, yeah. you know, probably cost them some sales. And so I think, you know, making your products more inclusive can be helpful from a business perspective, not just from a moral perspective. Yeah, totally. I was thinking about this Twitter thing. Uh, it was probably about a year ago. I was listening to the Reply All uh, podcast and they were talking about how uh, there's this black employee at Twitter and how he was like on the executive team or well in some kind of executive position like managerial or whatever it might be some senior right. senior gig and um they this was uh, i mean this is still going on but um the whole diversity in silicon valley and, and yes. startup companies and things like that um uh, i think there was there was a conversation they had at twitter and basically the people the powers that be at twitter were like ah we're not going to worry about it right now and he was just like what are you talking about? And and um, he had quit his wow. job and like wrote this blog post about it. And uh, there's a really good episode on Reply All. It's it has to have been at least a year ago when I listened to it. So totally recommend uh, checking that one out. It was it was a really good kind of overview, especially from his perspective, um, being in Silicon Valley and at a company like Twitter, right? Um, and what his experience was. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'll put I'll hunt that down and put it in the show notes from that you. very okay. descriptive <laughs> reply all from a year ago or so. So I'll hunt that down. I still remember where I was on the highway when I was listening to it too. And where was that? That might help me in my. <laughs> I was gonna say that'll totally help him find it. See, Kyle was on I-35 at mile yeah. marker. Yeah, I've been stuck there for 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My Starbucks cup was empty. Yeah. <laughs> it was tragic. <laughs> yeah. So so I know, so I've talked to uh, Julie James, who mm -hmm. uh, is kind of like the chapter leader for Women Who Code yes. in Denton. She's awesome. And she's, oh, she's great. I 
we need to have her on the podcast soon. Totally. Um, she, uh, it was interesting because there, there's another group as well called Girl Develop It, which is all, mm-hmm. they're national as well, and I think they have yes. a Dallas chapter. Yes. Um, and I, I wasn't sure, uh, I hope I'm not wrong, but I think their rule was um, the men can join as long as a woman invited him. Right, so like, oh, like, okay. like it was like a like a plus one system, right? Like, okay, interesting. Like, like the guys couldn't just come; like they had to be invited to the group. Okay. Um, and so uh, I think Dan was asking about this the other day because we saw one of the women who code uh, meetups on the board, and mm-hmm. uh, we saw there were like two guys scheduled to it. And while I'm like sometimes around just at Stoke when the events are going on, I, I, uh, I, I had this weird perception like, oh, well, like that's not my group, but I totally want to contribute if I could. But mm-hmm. um, I talked to Julie about it. And she's like, no, like like anyone can join. Like we liked you were considered an ally if you were helping promote the right. group and helping the the mission of the group, and like that's yeah. all the better. Yeah, you know. So, um, so how I mean. How did you get involved in women who code and what like what do you think it's doing for at least not not just women in tech in general, but like especially like localized, like women in tech in Denton, how do you think that supports the group? Well, I, I think it uh, supports people because one of the big things they do at our local chapter of women who code is people give lightning talks. Mm-hmm. And so that gives people the chance to uh, get comfortable, you know, talking about you know, whatever they have expertise in to other people and uh, getting comfortable and presenting themselves as an expert because that's one of the things that has come up in the literature time and time again is women often feel less comfortable presenting themselves as an expert on a particular issue and they mm. tend to, whereas men are more likely to like, you know, if they can, if they feel like they can kind of wing it through a topic, they totally will. <laughs> <laughs> And so that, that gives them the confidence. And then, you know, it, it shares that material with other people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, there are many times I definitely wing myself for a conversation. That's right, for right, sure. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, David, you're awfully quiet over there. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Beautiful. What would you um, say? Obviously, Kyle and I are two white males. Yes. So what advice do you give to us who obvi- we can't help that we are the majority, unfortunately, at this point, but what can we do to help those that are at a, at a disadvantage, perhaps, because they're in a group that's less represented? Okay. Uh, that, that's a great question. Um, and there, there is definitely a lot that you can do, and I firmly believe that... You know, for this to work, we need everybody on board, in, including white men. And one of the big things is I don't necessarily think the situation in the tech industry is the way it is because everybody is like horribly sexist, racist, and ageist. I think it's mostly because when you're in a hiring situation, people tend to hire people who look like themselves. And so since they are white men, the, you know, they're, they're just naturally predisposed to, to hire more white men. And also, I think there, there's kind of this resist, there's this idea in a lot of pockets of Silicon Valley that, oh, it's a meritocracy. And I think that's not entirely true. I think 
you have to make a concerted effort if you really care about diversity to actually seek out people from diverse populations and make that extra effort. And some, some people have a problem with that, but too bad. <laughs> well, to, to, again, borrow an example outside the tech field, uh, you know, Trevor Noah, when he took over the Daily Show from Jon Stewart, one of the things he wanted to do was diversify the writer's room. And so he uh, had, you know, the, the people who handle that sort of thing send out casting calls. And he thought he was casting a wide net. And then not too long after, but um, after like the first month or so, like they only had like 3% black applicants or something like that. And he was like, that can't be right. <laughs> and around this time, he went to a comedy club, a stand-up comedy club that featured a lot of black comedians. And he ended up having a conversation with one of them. And the comedian asked him, he's like, so are you guys hiring for writers? And Trevor Noah was like, well, we just sent out this big casting call that went out to all the agents. And the comedian pointed out to him, a lot of black comedians can't get agents. And so they don't get access to that information. Yeah. And so Trevor Noah, that, you know, that turned on a light bulb in Trevor Noah's head, even as a mixed race person himself, himself, he still had to make the extra effort to go and seek out those, those people in, in, in different populations that maybe didn't have access to the information. You know, access to information is, is a biggie mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good piece of advice. So yeah, make, make sure that, so like if you're, if you're, if you're in the position to hire someone, make sure it gets in front of a diverse, as diverse a group as possible. Maybe, you know, come and talk to a chapter of women who code or, you know, there's probably uh, I'm, I'm sure there's groups for like people who, co- you know, like people of color and there's, I don't think we have a local chapter, but I know there's a, a national organization called lesbians who tech, and like, like go there and present, you know, it's like, Hey, we're hiring for, you know, a front end developer or something like that, mm-hmm. that you actually have to like get in front of those people and not just like, Oh, we put it up on the website and anybody can apply <laughs> that, 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 that's not good enough. Yeah. Right. By definition, because right now it is a smaller pool of people. You have to put more effort in to right. find those people rather exactly. than just take this other 80, well, even more than 80%, what is it? 95% or something of white males that right. are in tech. You have to make that extra effort. And exactly. It, it, it's something you have to decide to do because it's important to you. Right. Is it okay to be colleges? Because sometimes I look at college, like where someone went to school and I go, I don't think I'm going to like this person. <laughs> <laughs> Only if it's an Ivy League school. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Just some of them have come across and I'm just like, uh, I don't know about you. I think any judgments about a person before you meet them are kind of. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, of course. Yeah. Well, well, one of the nice things about uh, the tech industry is there are ways, you know, that are independent of where you went to school or who you know that you can use to evaluate someone's proficiency. Mm-hmm. So, like, if they have a GitHub account or right, or you could even ask them, you know, something as simple to talk you through a particular implementation. Right. So, you know, yeah. there, there are things you can do that, you know, that that doesn't, you know. You know, GitHub doesn't care where you went to school or even if you went to school. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one of my whew, that's like one of my hot topics, um, especially when I was uh, going to school, because my when I was in high school, I started taking Cisco classes. My whole background was in like BCIS and networking and mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. Um, went through Cisco certification, started going to UNT, started in business and BCIS and eventually moved to uh, engineering and doing IT. And I, this whole time I was like, I'm going to do IT. I'm going to get, get networking. It's going to be great and awesome. It's so cool. Then I get to an internship the summer before my senior year. 
and it was an IT internship over at Peterbilt, which was great. Like the internship itself was awesome. I thought I thought it was really great. Um, but the fact that you had to have so many like certifications, you had to have all these like you had to make sure you had a certain type of degree. You need to get certified within a certain period of time in the certain areas that they wanted you to get certified in. Um, and these were things that like UNT was not going to provide for me. And even the certifications I did get at UNT that were extra to my degree, like I got this, uh, what is it, like NSA? Like, oh, did you get the information security one, whatever yeah, it's called? Yeah, yeah. I got yeah. I got two of them. There's like some kind yeah. of cryptography one and some kind of security one. <laughs> we, yeah, we. I, I don't know what it's useful for. But oh, yeah, I got the, the same one. Did I don't you know really? what I did to get it. But <laughs> I, yeah. I yeah. I, well, I, I think you just have to take a certain yeah. series of courses. Yeah, then you and, had to get a write-off from then, professor. Yeah, yeah get somebody to sign, sign that you took those courses. That was courses. the hardest part, really, was getting <laughs> yeah, the signature. Yeah, hunting somebody down. Like, okay, can you sign that I took these courses? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I got I feel, all yeah. those, and and despite that, even then getting a college degree, like spending all this money and time on a degree, mm-hmm. I show up to a job, and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, you still need to do these other things in your spare time. Like on top of that, just it was so frustrating. But yeah. but the, the industry, like I work in, when I – like there are two different parts of tech, and, you know. There's like corporate tech and not corporate tech as far as I'm concerned. And I think the – the non-corporate tech is now starting to put more um, like weight on like a duocracy kind of mm-hmm. scenario. Like, what have you done? And like, I don't care if you have a degree. I don't care if you have certifications. Show me what you've done. Let me know you can do it. Versus like trying to just go through the standard hoops yeah. to to get there. Yeah. The the only caveat I would add that um, sometimes you know anybody from marginalized populations is reluctant to contribute to open source problems because they've like a lot of times because they've experienced real harassment. So Mm -hmm. another thing on, you know, what can white men do if you see like sexism or racism or any kind of ism, call it out, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, knowing, you know, knowing that, um, you know, they have your back is really valuable to people who are, you know, fighting this battle every day of their lives pretty much. So, so yeah, anytime you see something that's not cool, I, I, I know the, the natural reaction is like, oh, I don't want to get involved, but you know, if it, to, to help get involved, you know, call out stuff that you see that's not appropriate. Yeah. What's, I forget what our rule is. I don't want to say it because it has a bad word in it, but it's basically like, don't be a jerk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Replace jerk with other words. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't yeah, be yeah. a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's, you, you could kind of combine that if you know, combine that with if you see something, say something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So so going into the last question, I think. Um, okay. So, so say, <laughs> I try and like come up with a scenario for every guest we have. Your student you're maybe interested in pursuing a graduate degree, maybe you're interested in technology. I mean, and I, I, I say, like, what advice would you give to someone like this? But with with your experience, like, there's a lot of advice you could give because there's so many different things a person right, can do. Right, you know? I mean, based on your experience and, and where, you're, where you're wanting to go versus where you've been, what advice would you give to someone, like, getting involved in technology? Well, I would say... Um you might be familiar with the phrase, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So I would say, you know, if you want to get into tech, you know, if you don't know any developers or people in the industry already, 
start finding some, start you know, looking for meetups and things like that. If you want to go to graduate school, talk to people who've been to graduate school and start hanging around them and see if that, you know, if uh, that's, you know, if you feel like you've come home or like, these are not my people. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's just more of them waiting once you go to. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah, because graduate school is not for everybody. And I mean, that that's true of everything. But I, I think some people, if, if, if you're going to go to graduate school, have a plan with what you want to do with that graduate degree. Yeah. That's don't just go with, uh, don't just go because, oh, the job market's not so good right now. And maybe I can wait it out for a little bit. Um, because then you'll, you'll just end up like overqualified and probably with no more of a clue than you had before. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, if if you're going to go to graduate school, know what you plan to do with it. Like I want to be a professor, which is less, you know, it's much harder to be a professor, even in computer science. Although it's not as bad as it it is in like the humanities, but, or I want to be a software engineer at Google, or I want to work in, you know, one of the federal government labs or something like that. So if you're going to go to graduate school, have an idea of what you want to do with it that would require that qualification. Totally. Awesome. Anything else, David? I got nothing. No. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So so action items. Surround your people with your, surround yourself with smart people. Go to meetups. Determine graduate degree. <laughs> <laughs> Something yes, like that. Something like that. <laughs> profit. 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 That is yes, number four. Profit. Uh, well awesome. Well thank you, Danielle, for being on the Tech Mill podcast today. Thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. Uh, for you listeners, we're doing this every two weeks, I think. At least we try to do it every two weeks. So, um, yeah, we'll see you guys again in two weeks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>